the nursing home industry won't likely see material system-wide change until the sector stakeholders, including CMS, operators, payers, as well as residents and their respective advocacy groups can get on the same page. That's according to Focus Post Acute Care Partner CEO, Mark McKenzie. The industry is ever evolving, he said, and while subtle improvements and strides will likely occur, like the move to private rooms, big changes will take big conversations. McKenzie has tried to make his voice and the voices of his Texas-based team heard at both the state and federal levels, especially as the state legislature will convene next year and discuss, among other things, potentially increasing nursing home Medicaid rates. He remains hopeful and believes state officials are more aware and have a much deeper knowledge of the challenges the nursing home industry faces than they ever did before. Operators in the state receive $154.98 per patient day even though the methodology says they should be making about $275 per patient day. I spoke with McKenzie on what adequate reimbursement looks like in the Lone Star State, the place in skilled nursing for heavily rural operators like Focus Post-Acute Care Partners, the need to staff up for higher acuity residents, and more. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight an upcoming event. On December 1st, Skilled Nursing News and Aging Media are presenting the inaugural Continuum Conference This event will bring together executives from across aging media's publications, including skilled nursing, home health, senior living, behavioral health, and hospice. Learn from peers outside your network and build new relationships. Request an invitation to this exclusive in-person event in Arlington, Virginia, by sending an email to events at agingmedia.com. Texas is one of the states where providers are anxiously awaiting to see how the legislature will respond to the increasing number of other states that have made Medicaid rate bumps tied to COVID and the PHE permanent. What are your thoughts, Mark, on how the state will respond? And what do you feel is adequate reimbursement for providers? Well, first, I'm very hopeful. I think it pays to be a little more positive in these types of settings. I know that our past history in Texas has not been one that has embraced fully funding the Medicaid system for skilled nursing environment. As, as you may be aware of, the average Medicaid recipient in Texas if you separate our quip program is receiving about $154.98 per Medicaid patient day against a methodology that says that we should be making about $275 per patient day and that's that's through Texas methodology i think that as we have learned through the pandemic the the state and its senior leadership has really developed an, an awareness and and a much deeper knowledge of our of the challenges that we have than they did in the past. And so as we, in the interim of the the legislative session for Texas, they had, our funding was a specific, a specific call to be addressed by the governor to look at it through the interim charges that each of the houses had to address and look at. So as the public hearings went on, it was clear they agreed, I would say in principle from, what I looked at and watched, I think the question is what amount they think is appropriate. As, as you know, Texas is a relatively conservative state, regardless of side of the aisle. And so both try to be extraordinarily responsible. What the association is looking at is obviously we would like to see the $19.63 from the public health piece in some form stay in play after the public health emergency is is removed, our, our hope is that we see that $19 stay in place as well as an additional $19, which would bring us to 
a $38 a day add-on to that base number of $154, which would put us in that $200 plus Medicaid reimbursement range. Obviously, I would like to say here and say I'd like the 273. That's what our methodology says, but that's not a reasonable ask. That's not a reasonable expectation. But I do believe, based on what we've learned through the pandemic, the changes that the the industry has in Texas has had to address puts us in a position that just the 1963, even if they just funded the 1963 with the expectations and the additional regulations that have have subsequently come out and will subsequently be coming out as a result of what we've experienced the last two years, that we need more runway than that. And so really bringing us up to that, bringing up to the $38 per patient day add-on, if you would, and the best way to put it, where where we would be averaging that $200, $205 range would be not only a breath of fresh air, but it would certainly be a step, a significant step in the right direction. And we are in a position with our state, fortunately, that there's a significant amount of money that, depending on who you talk to, between 26 and $28 billion, and that's surplus in our general revenue. And then that doesn't include the monies that we keep in what we call as the rainy day fund, which is between 10 and $13 million, as we said today. And as, as the legislative session comes out, they will certify both numbers more accurately. But obviously, there's there's a, many a request for, for those funds. But our request comes in at about $450 million per fiscal year. And it seems like a reasonable number and a reasonable approach. And based on what we've seen in the interim period between the legislative sessions, I believe that the leadership, regardless of side of aisle, has a willingness and, and responsibility to help. I think their their big challenge is trying to figure out what that number is, and and so we've tried to be pragmatic when we when we talk to them. And my hope is that you know that we continue to go down that line, and that they they live up to what they've insinuated or suggested, and that they're willing to to go forward with. And obviously, that's not they've not spit a number out, but they. They've they have talked about they recognize the need and that something has to be done. So I think the internal question for them is what what that something amounts to in a number. Definitely, yeah. It's been interesting to see how various states have carried these out, and I know that I'm sure providers in Texas are very curious to see what happens in the next legislative session. So thank you. Yes, I would uh, say so- reportedly optimistic. <laughs> it's a good way to put the good way to put it. Absolutely. And so taking it a little bit more broad in our conversation here, what place do you see in the skilled nursing industry for heavily rural operators, given that you are largely that type of provider, given all the challenges that the sector has faced in the last two years, as you just mentioned? Well, I think the industry as a whole is a part of the healthcare industry. And when we talk about the rural markets, I think we touch in two places. Really, we're a vibrant piece of the economy in those markets. And and we can, in the areas that we're able to continue to operate, we continue to be a a vital piece of the economy. I think the big challenge for us in the rural market, as, as we look at it going forward, is from a staffing standpoint and from a, our ability to operate and bring the systems in, into the rural communities that our urban communities enjoy much more 
abundantly or much more readily, I guess is the best is the best way to say it. You look across the, the, the spectrum, we see a lot of emphasis in rural hospitals and, and the need to keep those rural hospitals open and the need to become creative with what we do from a legislative standpoint and a reimbursement standpoint on how to make sure that that, that remains so that there's access in those, in those areas. It's much the same need that we need to see for the post-acute care industry, skilled nursing in, in those rural markets. The, the legislative side, whether it's state or federal, and, and really from a regulatory standpoint or a CMS standpoint and in, in looking and being creative and recognizing that, that there are unique differences in the rural markets and the challenges that we have and, and that of the urban market, not changing the standard or expectation, but changing maybe things that we can do from that standpoint. And, and it starts with recognizing that, that the skilled nursing side is just as impacted and as affected as the rural access hospitals are, because in, in many ways we're, we are the exact same person competing for the exact same people to deliver the exact same care, though one is for an acute period of time and the other is for a long-term period of time. Many of the patients in, that we have or the team members that we have are that, you know, they are two people on the same side of the coin. They go, they, they float between the, you know, our team members float between the, the rural access hospital and then they also work over at the skilled nursing center. And we are looking and hopeful. And as I said, we're, we are often either the set, the largest or the second largest employer in those communities. And so just from an economic position for those communities, it's imperative that, that the thought process is put together so that our operators that are in skilled nursing, I mean, in the rural settings, have an opportunity to be successful because it's it not only is it an access to care issue for you know for a, from a long term care perspective, but it's an economic viability issue for the communities that we serve. And so, in what ways has Focus Post Acute Care Partners leaned on its partnership with its acute care partners during these challenging times? I know that some operators have indicated to Skilled Nursing News that the relationship has improved overall or has evolved over the course of the last two plus years. Do you feel that to be true? Yes, ma'am. It's absolutely evolved. Uh, if we go back to the pre-pandemic period, it was definitely, a, I won't say it was a us versus them mentality, but the, the collaborative approach certainly wasn't there. And then as COVID inter, interceded into, the, into those rural communities, initially the rural access hospitals in the communities that I were at that, that I serve became very hesitant to assist anything. They were very restrictive on the patients that they would take from us. We had to be able to prove that they were COVID negative. Otherwise they diverted all of our patients to an alternative hospital and typically would be in an urban market. So it really created a problem for us as both provi as providers, as well as the family members of those loved ones. But over the course of time, I think, I won't say that it softened. I think they recognized that through a collaboration, working with the physicians, working with the team members, we saw that there was a, became, a, I will say, marginally, they begin to understand our scope and practice and understand and appreciate it more. We had two hospitals that we were able to work with from a staffing component where if we had an open position and they were often in a position to have to send team members home, they would reroute them to us where we could use them instead of having to go outside of agency and they not have a 
have a, a, a familiar face to care for them, we were able to partner with the hospital and we would take some of their employees that maybe would be left off a shift and put them on our shift so that there was coverage. You know, it worked well for the, those team members. They had a job and they could continue to work and not have to spend down either a PTO day or however the hospital was in that particular case was approaching it. But we also were able to have a full staff of nurses, which was very helpful for us, as you might be understand. And the interesting part is it's the same nurses that our patients received when they went to the hospital anyway. So it did have a great piece of continuity of care. So things worked really well in those environments. And that's where in those environments is where we saw the, the most progress in collaboration and understanding what it is that we did, how they could truly help us, how their physician groups could help us. But just as importantly, what it is that we as a, as a local long-term care provider needed to do to help our rural access hospital. I don't, I can't stress enough, there was education to be had on both sides of the coin. Yeah, no, that's really interesting that you guys were sharing staff at times because I know that from our understanding on the acute care side and the hospital side, they're wanting to discharge patients. So not only are they helping you staff your facilities, they're also helping themselves by potentially being able to discharge those patients, knowing that you guys are fully staffed. That's really interesting. It was very helpful. Like I said, it's, and now that things are kind of changing around, it has, I hate to say that it's gone back to how it was in the past, but that's not true because there's that, there is that mutual respect and understanding of our skills and capabilities. And I think an appreciation of what it is we do there it do in our environment, but there are still, in, in many settings, we both find ourselves desperately needing that one RN that lives near us, and there's not another RN within a 75-mile radius. And so we, you know, it's almost hand-to-hand combat to see who can recruit that person to your doorstep. So we still have those, those types of issues going forward, but it has been, I won't say every hospital embraced that opportunity to share staff and do those things. But the areas that did, it worked out well for us. It worked out well for them as well. We can, and it's a much better process as, as we have moved forward. So let's take a brief step back and talk about your journey into this role as CEO. I'm curious how you got into the healthcare field and worked your way up the career ladder. It, it was really by chance. I was in college working on my graduate degree and needed a job for that first year of graduate school. And the only place I could get employed was at the local nursing home during the, the where I went to school. I'd, other than being in Boy Scouts, I'd never been in a nursing home once in my life as an as a young adult or an adult. So I didn't know what what to expect. But I became a nursing assistant. I was one of two male nursing assistants at the community, and and I really found that I had a love for that. And so as I was going through my first year of grad school, I ended up having to you know, laugh came upon me. And so I had to get a job. I ended up working in the defense industry. And and five years later, I had an opportunity to go back into the long-term care arena. And and I got my nursing home administrator's license in 1991. My internship was from 1990 to 1991. I became an administrator at that point in time. And then over the next five years, worked as an administrator then became a regional director of operations for the organization I was with. And from that point on, I, I just was very fortunate that I had a skill set that seemed to, to prepare me to 
be successful. I worked well with our team members and various organizations. And over the course of time, I moved from smaller organizations to, to large publicly traded organizations and subsequently up the corporate ladder to divisional president. I mean, divisional vice presidents, divisional president, senior president, senior operational president. And then eventually I started a company for a group of investors out of California that became senior care centers. And we developed, we started with 14 buildings. And when I left the organization, we had, we were trade, we had a top line of about $1.2 billion in revenues and multiple lines of business and predominantly in Texas and a little bit outside the state of Texas into Louisiana. But we were, we were quite a successful company. And then I left that organization and a handful of months later, not knowing what I really wanted to do, decided to start Focus Post Acute Care Partners. And we started operation in February of 2017. And so what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen to the industry since you started in the space, you know, three decades ago now? In three decades, that sounds, that makes me sound so old. When I look back and, and I had just had this conversation with a, a relatively new administrator and he asked that question, oddly enough, pretty much just as you did. And I would have to say the needs of the, pa- the patients themselves are what have changed. As I look at our, what I will call our lightest or most easy patients to tend to or care for were patients in 1990 and 1991 that we would have been mortified to take off of out of the hospital and bring into our communities. And now those are the patients that we see as everyday patients because they would have been ICU and med surge patients if they toured us, you know, if they even called us from the hospital. And at that point in, in what we could effectively do in Texas, we wouldn't do. And in today, it, it's a completely different thing, which really change it takes you to that next step of the skill set of all of our team members due to the lack of complex care that we had in ni- in Texas in 1990 I'm not going to broad brush the industry but in Texas of 1990 our our team members didn't have to have quite the competencies that maybe you would have hoped that they had and we could approach it a little differently than we can today I mean I was fortunate to have one two-year degreed RN in the building, whereas now I have BSRNs, I have master level RNs, I have the type of skill set and, and the, they have the ability to do, to provide care for a litany of comorbidi- uh, comorbidities that allow us to be a very complex center for those patients that need our type of care model. And when you look at the two, you would never have put those two together in 1930, excuse me, 30 years ago in 1990, the, the type of care that we deliver with the team member in which we deliver it with. Those are really the two biggest, what I will call largest changes that I would say has changed across the industry, which also has driven a little more respect our, our way. And then the adaption of technology, long-term care in Texas is, and, and I would probably say generally across the system is slow to adopt technology or we were early on. Now we seem to be embracing it much better than what we did in the early nineties or three decades ago and technology, technology, technology. We, you know, we're always looking for that new toy that will help us become much more effective 
and be able to provide that consistent care and have a better knowledge of what's going on with our, our residents. And then finally, just the regulatory environment in general has changed. Obviously, it needed to change with the increased expectation of the types of patients that we care for and what we needed to be able to do is that our, our regulatory cadence has definitely been leveled, I would say tenfold, but I'm, I'm not sure that that would be correct. But the, just the significance in which it has gone from, and I'm not going, I'm not minimizing what the regulatory expectations were in 1990 and 1991 when I first came in, but the criteria of patients were such that the regulatory expectations met that criteria. And now the criteria of patients that our industry sees as a whole, and again, it's the same, we see these same residents in the rural markets that we see as, as they do in the urban markets. It, would, it stands to reason that the, that the expectations and the rule over, or regulatory oversight would be significantly increased. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like um, from what we've heard from some providers that skilled nursing facilities are almost turning into mini hospitals in some cases. I always have said that when I, like I said, we, if I go back to the hospitals I toured, all of our patients were med surge patients at that point in time. And you would never think to send, have sent one to a skilled nursing center at that point. And so what would you say are two of the biggest successes and challenges that you've faced thus far as CEO? Truly say is the biggest success is still being in business today. As you know, the failure rate for new organizations, not in long-term care specifically, but just in general is quite high in the first five years. We had just completed our third year of operations when COVID hit. And so I'm very, very proud of the fact that as a relatively new organization at the three-year mark, and then we just have this catastrophic event occur in the, across the world, that as, as a provider, we've been able to weather the storm and continue to move forward over these past two and a half years. I'm not saying it hasn't been easy. It's been extraordinarily difficult. And if I had a wish to do over, I wished I would have had three more years uh, as the run up where both our systems and our culture and really better system of all of our processes being really locked down. Uh, that would have been my preference if I would have had, if I knew I had to go through what we all have gone through. But to have only been in, in business three years and still re getting through the process and ending up where it appears that we are today, you know, I think that's that's probably the, the greatest accomplishment that that I can think of that I've been able to do across the whole 30 years that I've been here because it's just been that type of challenge for all of us in the space. The other accomplishment I, I, I would like to think is that we've been able to influence policy to some degree and influence some public opinion within the areas in which we operate in. We try to be very, very open, both in the good times and the bad, when we have great events at the community versus those times that you go. And that was just, we just did not meet the mark on that, regardless if it was our building ended up on a special focus listing or an IJ or whatever occurred. We've been able to be work with the, the local press with and stay very, very open so that people understand, one, what it is that we can and can't do within the, within the industry and within an organization such as ours. 
but we're also at working on on helping input and provide that input for public policy. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your thoughts on the recent updates to the special focus facility program that CMS released in the last week. How do you think that might impact the program going forward? And in what ways do you think it might challenge or, or, or make the system better? Man, I, I just have a hard time. I mean, I've read it and like every every provider and, you know, we, we're kind of taking it back. I'm not sure that I believe continuing to throw stones or make the stones larger or, or whatever you want to say, make it more aggressive is the way to go. The, the premise and the underlying premise that I when I read that is that they think these are one-off providers, just like myself and any other provider of, that has any large scope of, of homes, they will find themselves either they have or they will find themselves maybe one of their buildings being on that, that list. The other 29 buildings have never been near that list, but this one building that seems to be problematic for whatever reason gets on there, then that, and, and they want to broad brush that particular provider as a bad provider, as opposed to looking at it as a one-off within a system that appears to be doing really good things across the system in general. And so as CMS often does, there's really no collaboration. And until, especially on the special focused communities, until there is a much more, I guess, uh, congenial collaboration. I'm not saying it changes what we have to do as the provider or what they have to do as a regulatory, but we need to be able to sit down there and have a conversation about what is going well and what is not going well both ways, because those same surveyors survey the other buildings that those providers have and don't have those, those challenges. And so what is it that either the system seems to be missing or the staff isn't doing within the system? And, and how can we fix that? Again, not being collaborative is not very helpful. Uh, additional fines isn't going to make me try to get the, the community off the special focus list any harder than I was trying to get it off the special focus list anyway, because it doesn't do me, as just from a very biased position, it doesn't do me any good to have a building perceived to be very ineffective and not providing a standard of care that is expected both internally with myself as well as with the community in which we serve. And so I, I think it's going to create a problem that if there truly is a bad operator, it's going to be very difficult to get an organization to assume that building to try to fix it. It makes it because if, if you make the hurdle higher, you're, you're asking me as a provider to come in and take what we already know to be a problematic building and now I'm under the gun to solve that problem. And so I think the biggest challenge it's going to make is that from a future standpoint, if there's a provider that says, hey, I'll come in and try to fix this building, I think people will really take a second look at that because it puts them in a very precarious position if they're not successful. I know for from my perspective, I, I took a skill, a special focus facility just before the pandemic hit from an outgoing provider and and did it, and, and we did it as a favor and it ended up taking us a bit of time to get that facility off the list, but we we did get it off the list. But as we talk about what goes on today and, and their suggestions on the special focus facility, I'm not sure 
I would take that risk again. It's, it's just a risk that if you're not successful, you end up in that broad brush stroke of you were a poor provider. We had to close your building down. And it, to me, it just would fall under that. No good deed goes unpunished. And, and so from that standpoint, I think you have a problem getting someone that everyone agrees is an exceptional operator to take that, they take that building with, and unless there's an opportunity to, to reset the clock so that they have a fair, fair runway to solve the problem. Otherwise it will sit there and languish it till the, till either it gets closed down or the provider can solve the problem. Definitely. Yeah. That's certainly what we've been hearing in the early thoughts about this as the regulations had just been released in the last week or so. So just switching gears a little bit to talk about staffing. I know last fall you spoke with skilled nursing news about the burnout that was seen among administrators and DON losses as well, and how that had turned into what you called a critical issue. And I guess I'm just kind of curious, where does that stand in terms of administration and DONs and and staffing in general? Are you guys seeing any relief from that? Is it about the same? Has it gotten any worse? Uh, It hasn't gotten any worse. And and, and I would suggest it's probably about the same. We, for our organization, we've been pretty fortunate. We've seen a, a little bit of a turn turnaround on the administrator and, and the DON level. And I think part of that is just kind of the understanding that COVID is now with us and, and it's going to be it's no different than when we, back in the late mid nineties, when we started taking HIV patients in Texas and skilled nursing, everything was, oh my gosh, I can't work here. I'm not going to, and it's too hard and, and that kind of mentality. And now after two and a half years, and we've kind of, kind of gotten a cadence of what's going on, we're starting to see a little bit of softening on people either leaving or getting so frustrated and just say, I'm out, I'll come back in a couple of years. We're starting to see some of the people that left come back. We've had a handful of team members. They, now they haven't come back to the senior le- leadership role. They would come back into a charge nurse role or, or maybe the assistant director of nursing or MDS or something like that, where they're not having to be the, the full leader. But that said, getting that type of knowledge back to our communities is very, very helpful. And still it's getting, it's starting to see people come back in, into our industry. So it that piece of it has been helpful. I think from, when you look at it from the, the nurse aid level and some of our more direct line level, it is still a challenge because their staffing agencies have been created that have you know, reset the market for some of the wages or how they, how our team members want to work. And so it, the one thing that I think COVID did for all of our industry is it's going to force us to have to think about how we staff going forward and be uh, thoughtful to the work-life balance that those team members want so that they don't burn out. So what are some wins that you guys are seeing on the, the side of staffing? Is there anything in particular that you've seen that has worked well, even at the building level that you'd be able to share with our listeners? A couple of things. Let me take a step back. At, the, at our lowest point, 25% of our shifts would go uncovered and it would be uncovered. Either agency couldn't get in. It doesn't matter why they were uncovered. They were just uncovered. And pre-pandemic, we would run between 8 and 10% uncovered of those shifts. And that's a metric that we have that we've continued to follow throughout. Now we've put some, obviously we've addressed compensation. We've addressed 
education, trying to put systems in place. And over the course of time, we've gotten our work. As we said today, we have at any given day, we'll run about 9% of our shifts still, of projected shifts still not being covered, which kind of mirrors that what we started in pre-COVID times. The challenge is, and it's one of those deals that the, the temporary waivers, the the opportunity to use, I'm going to call them universal workers, hospitality workers, and in, in, in multi kind of locations or multi roles within a time when staffing was at its most critical, was helpful because those waivers are still in place for us in some of the in some of the situations. So we are able to we're back to the ten to that you know to really the pre COVID missed shifts opportunity. But it's with a different group of people. And I think it's demonstrated that not everything has to be done by a CNA. We have done as an organization, we have tried to pair out for our hospitality aides or the folks that we're using as universal workers or doing some other things within the organization. If they are supplementing team members that are licensed or certified, we really took a, a sharp look at what duties actually require a certified nursing assistant. Obviously, bathing, tending, doing those type of things fall under that. But about 70% of the duties that, that the nurse aide do, that would be doing fall under those that anybody can do if they're just there to do it. And so the win have for us has been getting creative with identifying what roles we can pull off the CNA so that we know we still have a limited number of nursing certified nursing assistants out there and to be utilized. So how can we minimize the duties that they do and bring them to a alternative you know, professional to come in and do, you know, as I said, the hospitality aides or the universal workers where we're able to effectively get the same, we may have more noses or, or more hands and team members in the community doing, helping make sure that the job is being done, but we may not have as many certified nursing assistants because they're just not there to be had. And so using these these waivers to our advantage and what type of team member they're letting us bring in, we at Focus Care have been very, very creative at trying to, to solve that problem from that standpoint. And, and as I said, using going from a 25% miss shift back down to a nine to 10% miss shift is a huge win for us. It's a huge win for our, our residents. Now it, it's been a challenge getting some of our team members to get out of the old traditional thinking about this is what a nurse does. This is what a nurse aide has to do. This is what a hospitality aide can't do and can do. And really looking at it from a critical standpoint. And then the other issue I think we've seen wins in is that we've really, the last, this year was an was one of our years of really focusing on retention. We have a tendency to get people to come through the door, but we just couldn't retain them. So we have a process where there's, it's like within their first 30 days, senior leadership of every community has an expectation of, touching that employee and talking to those new employees no less than five times during that first 30 days and then additional three times over the next 60 days. 
so that we can get them. We knew that if we could get them to 60 days, we could get them over the 90 day hump where it seems to be our largest drop off. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have really attacked retention no different than we attack. How do we find additional patients that, that we may be, that we may be able to solve their healthcare needs. And it's, we're starting to see incremental improvement in that. I think going from a 25% miss shift opportunity to a less than 10% miss shift opportunity demonstrates that. But again, we're not doing it with the same type of team members that we did pre-COVID. And our, my hope is, is that as we move forward and we look at some of the staffing requirements coming down the line from CMS that appear to be headed our way, that they too will be creative and allow creativity at bedside and creativity at the communities to, to look at what type of team member or what type of license or certification is needed for certain pieces of a job, but letting those other pieces fall to what I will call a paraprofessional or someone you know that, that can do those other things. But it does a couple of things for us. It creates the ability to bring people in and that think they want to be in nursing or think they want to be in the healthcare field, they can do some certain things and get a flavor for it and see if that's really for them. But it also creates a, a kind of a track of, Hey, I come in as a hospitality aide, then I can become a certified nursing assistant and then on through. And there's different. It, now you have a true difference in job function as well as ability to, from a compensation standpoint so that we can do some pretty unique things. Yeah. I, I, you're not the first person that has brought up the idea of expanding the definition of the caregiver. And I know that I, a lot of providers are curious to see kind of where that staffing requirement falls in terms of who counts or who you can apply to what and, and what have you. And it appears to me, especially with what you're talking about with being able to get back to those pre COVID numbers that, getting creative is kind of how you had to do it. So it'll be interesting to see what flexibilities, if any, that CMS provides in terms of expanding beyond the traditional CNA, LPN, RN, those types of roles in the staffing requirement. Yes, ma'am. So just some last few questions here. In terms of occupancy, I know we spent a lot of time talking about staffing and some of the ways in which you all are trying to kind of rebound from COVID. Where does occupancy stand for focus post acute care partners and where is it at in terms of getting back to those pre-pandemic levels? Pre-pandemic, we ran about the state average of 67, 68% occupancy. Today, we're between 59 and 60% occupancy, kind of depending on the day and the ebb and flow of the, of the census mix. The issue for us is and where we are seeing our growth is in our urban markets where we're still seen struggles are in those rural markets. Obviously, the mortality rate continued regardless of market you were in. But in our rural markets, a good month, may you may see two admissions, three admissions a month against your one or two mortality events. Whereas during that time, during the, the heights of COVID, when the hospitals weren't taking patients and they weren't sending anybody in that, in those environments, you know, with the mortality rate continuing, become a much more difficult task for us in our in our rural markets to see the rebound and, and the pace of rebound that we're seeing in our urban market. 
And so we continue to focus on that. It's, I think it's a, if, if our trends continue the way they are, it will be the back end of 2023, maybe the first quarter of 2024, when I realistically expect us to be back into the same numbers that we were before that, before the gotcha. pandemic. Gotcha. And so what excites you most about the future of Focus Post-Acute Care Partners? I think just the opportunity to get up every day and make an impact, not only for our team members, but for the, and the residents, but the, and the community that we serve, but for our industry. There's a lot to be done in our industry. We are still a relatively fractured industry from my perspective in that every state that we all are under the same CMS federal contract, it's, it's managed and it's funded and it's regulated uniquely to each state. So when we try to talk, and it's not apples to apples when we do comparative conversations because of those those issues. But those issues create opportunities as well. And I'm pretty much always a hat glass is half full. And if you're going to be there, let's be positive and see what we can do to create positive change. And so from my standpoint, just that opportunity to continue the process. You know, it's we as an organization in tech, you know, here in Texas, as again, we're five years in and we're not out of the woods yet, but, you know, we're going to show up and fight every day. We know that we have a couple of things in the future that are very, very positive for us getting to that. You know, it's a difficult task to get to that point, but it's just an opportunity to really do some really incredible things within the industry. And again, hopefully impacting as the industry evolves, leaving some little bit of footprint that maybe is a, is impactful as we go forward. And I know we talked a little bit about this, but I'm just kind of curious what you see as the vision of the skilled nursing facility of the future. Man, I've thought about that question and, and tried to, to, to think about it. But I think I'm just going to take a step back and say we're in a point in time that, that it's ever evolving. And I think that until all of the stakeholders get on the same page and that's CMS, that's the operators, that's the the payors, as well as the residents and the advocacy groups for the residents on that we can all agree what is going forward. This is what a what we expect out of the skilled nursing center. This is what we think it should look similarly like. And then we can start putting that into practice. I think if you if we if we have to look at the future if you're asking me to look at the future under the assumption that it's under the same similar environment in which we've had to work the last 30 years I've been in, though I'm an optimistic person, I just don't see material change system-wide. I think you will see everybody, every operator and every smaller organization looking at it through their own lens. And what I may look at is, Hey, I'm still going to, my niche is going to be the rural markets and it's going to have a more of a traditional long-term care flavor. Whereas if I'm in an urban market, I can be very specialized in what I do, right? As, as I do now, we're one building, I focus on how to do inpatient dialysis versus how I do bariatric treatment in another. And that's my specialty. And that's really what we focus on in those communities. I think it will continue much the way it is today. And not to say that there won't be subtle improvements and subtle, 
know, and, and, and strides and, and care and, and moving the needle down the road. But when you, if you take a step back and listen to the conversation about the space, take emotion out. I don't know that if we, we talk to those five people from CMS, the, a, a listing of the operators, the stakeholders, that you could get an agreement on what needs to, what it is as we speak today. So it, it, that's, it's very difficult for me to say that. So I, I would probably be remiss if I said anything more than you'll see subtle improvements, more single occupancy rooms, things like that. But that's kind of a, a standard answer that we all give until we have a true system that we're all agreeing on that this is the environment that we have to make work. It's very difficult. And that's just, you know, one small guy's opinion. <laughs> no, it makes sense. And, you know, since this is the rethink podcast, what do you think is one thing that providers should rethink about the skilled nursing industry? I'm going to go back to staffing. I think for, I will speak for me as an or, as a leader of this organization, but also as our organization, we've been so married that whether it was six to two, two to 10, 10 to six or whatever, Monday through Friday, four on two, whatever those lock rigid pieces are, we've been so married to that within our industry that we were unable to, to attack, effectively attack the staffing crisis that we had as we came through. Instead of looking at all the other ways you could get to get to your staffing metric accomplished, we kept trying to put that square peg in the round hole. People want flexibility. We knew it pre-pandemic. If you had read any articles about the, whether you want to talk about the millennials or the younger generations coming up, they put great value on that. But we as an industry stuck to all, as a whole, stuck to our rigid staffing patterns of it's always been this way. The one thing that we've done at, at, at Focus Care, we've developed our own scheduling system that mirrors that of an agency or a shift key type function. And we've started doing, you know, we have our 60% of our team members that want permanent home basing employment. That's still these 40% that we have to do. And so our leadership has to get on, has to get comfortable with, yes, it will take four more people to create the shift. But if you know that Mark will show up on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday during these times, though it may not be optimum, now you've got, you know, Mark will show up and, and I will be there on those days and you start piecing around. And so our scheduling system that we've put together allows us to take advantage of those team members that we have or that have left us or that we have met from agency utilization. We have migrated them onto our platform that we developed internally to work the same process that it's no different because when we talk to them, they don't care who gives them their $18 an hour, as long as they're getting $18 an hour and get to pick what shifts they work. And so it's really been a, we have it out in seven of our buildings working through the, the final bugs of it will be rolled out to all of our buildings at the end of this year, but it hasn't, and those buildings using it, We've seen a greater satisfaction in our team members. We've incrementally seen better shift coverages there. I'm not saying it's the end all to be all, but we have seen improvement. But what it does is it opens us up that we're able to utilize team members that 
as little as before the, you know, the, the height of the pandemic, we just said no you know, when we desperately needed someone. And so mm-hmm. that's what I would think we really need to do, because if work-life balance is an issue and if it's a societal issue, it shows up in workplace and work-life balance is a societal issue at this point. Definitely. It seems like flexibility is a common trend that I think we're seeing not only from our conversation, but in this industry, having to reckon with that as well as the, the broader workforce in general. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.